Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and thanks for joining me for this, our first show of the new decade. And we have a good one for you. You're first going to hear from Ingrid Newkirk, the co-founder and president of PETA. That's the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. 2020 will mark the 40th anniversary of their founding. So thinking ourselves as basically gods and the rest of the animal kingdom as unimportant or even trash Mm -hmm. just really doesn't fit with our idea of ourselves as intelligent thinking people with compassion for all and respect and who understand other cultures. Animals, after all, are just other cultures. And then I'll be joined by Nat Kendall Taylor, the chief executive officer of the Frameworks Institute. He'll tell us how he thinks about framing. So when I talk about framing, when when Frameworks talks about framing, uh, what we mean is the ways in which decisions in how you present information affect people's perceptions and behaviors. That's that's it simply. The choices that you make in how you communicate your messages and how those choices, both big and small, have impacts, have effects on what people think, how they feel, and what they are or are not willing to do. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, January 12th. Inflation at institutions of higher education rose 2.5%. Now that's down from 2.9% in 2018 and 3.4% in 2017. The Kresge Foundation has announced that it is adopting equity as its sixth organizational value, joining opportunity, respect, partnership, stewardship, and creativity. Although a strong economy tends to boost giving by individuals to charities, many nonprofits are facing a giving gap as a result of a tax law changes that keep mid-level donors from itemizing charitable deductions. JetBlue is going jet green. The airline announced plans this week to become the first major U.S. carrier to go carbon neutral. And finally, Nicole Kidman and her husband Keith Urban have pledged $500,000 towards those affected by the devastating fires in Australia. Singers Pink and Selena Gomez are among other stars who have also donated. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Ingrid Newkirk right after this. With nearly one in four New Yorkers struggling to meet their most basic needs, we know our city is facing a crisis. But did you know that our highest poverty rates are among women and mothers? These women don't need handouts. They need a hand up. That's why Grameen America provides tens of thousands of women across our city with the loan capital they need to start their own small businesses. With the gift of entrepreneurship, these women have the opportunity to escape poverty, provide for their children, and gain independence. Join the movement today. Invest in New York City by investing in them. Visit GrameenAmerica.org to learn more. Tiana was homeless and looking for a change. At Year Up, she gained valuable skills and a path to success. 85% of Year Up alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support transformative opportunities for young adults like Tiana. Visit YearUp.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, commonly known as PETA, will turn 40 years old this year. It is the largest animal rights group in the world, and its slogan is, Animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, use for entertainment, or abuse in any other way. And it's a pleasure to have with us this evening the co-founder and president of PETA, 
Ingrid Newkirk, who has just come out with a new book titled Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Good evening, Ingrid, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. Delighted to be here. Speak about your underlying philosophy, the underlying philosophy of the organization that drives all of this work. Well, I grew up, like most people, caring about animals, which meant you never beat the dog or starve the horse. (laughs) And that was basically what it meant. And I read a book by Peter Singer called Animal Liberation, which is often called the Bible of the Animal Rights Movement. And it changed my way of thinking. In his book, he says that perhaps you shouldn't just be kind to animals. You should consider them as other nations or other tribes, Mm -hmm. that they're just forms of life like our own. Um, You may look different, but everyone has a beating heart. Everyone has emotions, they think. And so perhaps they're not ours to use at all. It's not that you would have a longer chain or a bigger cage. It's that perhaps they should just be left in peace. They're not ours to make into hamburgers and handbags and coats and so on. And PETA has challenged the idea of human supremacy in the animal world, correct? We have indeed. Um, I grew up in the animal, in in the uh, women's rights movement, Mm -hmm. you know, and the gay rights movement came after that. And the premise has always been that we shouldn't be looking for um, our differences. We should be looking at our similarities and we should have great compassion for everyone, even if they don't exactly fit the mold of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the same is true. The same principle applies. If racism is wrong, if sexism is wrong, human domination of any living being is wrong. So thinking ourselves as basically gods and the rest of the animal kingdom as unimportant or even trash Mm -hmm. just really doesn't fit with our idea of ourselves as intelligent thinking people with compassion for all and respect and who understand other cultures. Animals, after all, are just other cultures. Notwithstanding Peter Singer's book, you were on your way to become a stockbroker. What happened that changed your tra- the uh, trajectory of your life and got you to start PETA? Well, I really just wanted to travel. I had, <laughs> <laughs> I had traveled as a child all over, and I wanted to continue that as an adult. I was footloose and fancy-free, but I had to do something. And um, I've always liked mathematics. I've always liked figures. Mm. And for some reason, I thought, well, I'll go take the, uh, I'll study for the brokerage exam. And that's what I was doing. But in my heart, I knew I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a a person who really cares that much about money. I'm sorry to say (laughs) that it wouldn't have suited me. And then someone next door to me in the countryside in Maryland Mm -hmm. moved away left all these cats behind, and I found myself taking them to the shelter. And when I got to the shelter, the conditions were so appalling, the place was so filthy, that people didn't care at all, that I saw a little notice on the bulletin board for a kennel cleaner. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the front office and said, may I apply? (laughs) And they said, no, you're overqualified. which is something I've never understood. No one, how can anyone be overqualified for anything? You can be underqualified, but you really can't be overqualified. And so I fought for that job and I got it. And I ended up helping reform that facility. And that was the start of my journey into animal welfare, animal protection, animal legislation, and 
ultimately animal rights. Well, it's been an incredible journey. Let's talk about some of this work. I think many listeners might be most familiar with PETA through your campaigns against wearing fur. What were some of the milestones of that effort? And by and large, how did wearing fur become socially unacceptable? Well, we started 40 years ago. And you know, back then, fur was incredibly desirable. A little girl growing up would try on her mother's or her grandmother's coat, sometimes with foxtails and, you know, artificial eyes on the fox's heads, all sorts of things. No one thought about it. And then someone came up with a videotape, I think it was from Canada, Hmm. of animals being caught in steel traps and absolutely bug-eyed, petrified. And we decided we would try to get all the groups together to do a mailing to people, anyone we could find, and show them the photographs from this. It wasn't a video back then. It was a film. Show them stills from this film. And we started a movement to say fur is not desirable. It's hideously cruel. It's unnecessary. It's a survivalist sort of clothing. You don't need it. And it took off, but it took off very slowly. Oh, yeah. It takes a while to uh, get traction from these campaigns. It probably took, what, five, ten years, maybe? I don't oh, know. maybe more. Maybe because more, yeah. I remember we were in New York, and we would actually have um, steel traps that we had padded and put on our own hands, and we would crawl along the sidewalk mm-hmm. outside fashion shows, and people would just laugh. You know. And we would uh, protest outside Bloomingdale's and Macy's and so on. And some people would be horrified, and others would just go right on into the first salon. <laughs> but today, of course, we've pushed very hard. Yes, and you did. we have never let up mm-hmm. over these years. And now we have Macy's is closing its first salon, as you know. For this past um, year, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. and Gucci, Galliano, Donna, Vitella, Versace, uh, Donna Karen, none of these people design and, and sell fur anymore. It's over. It, the fur, fur wars are basically over. Well, that one's done, yeah. And in Animal Kind, you discuss some of the alternatives to fur. What are some of the best of these? Well, it's not just fur either. Because some people are quite stunned to hear our undercover investigations, particularly in places like China mm-hmm. uh, and in Africa for, for crocodiles, but China for angora, Badger hair, which which is used in paintbrushes and uh, makeup brushes, all these come from animals who don't voluntarily give (laughs) up their skin or their (laughs) wool or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, they're not saying, take me. Um, And so it's really barbaric how they're treated. And when we've shown that to companies like H&M and Zara and so on, they've said, all right, fine, we'll take it off the shelves. We won't sell it. Zara is an incredibly ethical company, and they, in fact, gave us something like a million dollars worth of Angora Hmm. they had in stock, which we then sent to refugee camps overseas for the winter in places like Afghanistan. But yeah, there are many alternatives, and you see people now making uh, fibers out of, I mean, there's pineapple leather, there's apple leather, there's grape leather, there's faux fur, of course, galore, but you don't have to have a synthetic. You right. can use one of the natural fibers like jute mm-hmm. or hemp. or It's extraordinary what designers are doing these days with threads and natural uh, materials. Yeah, the technology has come so far that alternatives are so much easier than they were four decades ago. PETA is also known for its undercover investigations, and perhaps one of the earliest and most famous uh, was the Silver Spring Monkeys. Tell us about that case. 
that was quite an eye-opener for people. And in fact, that really launched us. Yeah, I know. Because people didn't realize you could do anything about what was happening to animals in laboratories. And most people, I think, honestly thought it's just a few animals mm -hmm. and they're being used, they're being treated well, and they're being used for life-saving uh, procedures. And justify the means. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we were able to show through the Silver Spring Monkeys that it's actually millions of animals. They're kept abominably and they're used for every full purpose under the sun. In the case of the Silver Spring Monkeys, there were 17 macaque monkeys being kept in these small cages with broken wires, mm -hmm. filthy, not cleaned, in a laboratory in Silver Spring that was actually just a warehouse. They were getting tons of money from the National Institutes of Health all tax funds, and they had put out for grants from everything from the Red Cross to who knows what. And what this experimenter would do, and this is not unusual that he didn't have any medical training whatsoever, he wasn't a veterinarian, he was a psychologist, he would cut open the monkey's backs, and then one or more of their arms would be what he called deafferented. They, they wouldn't be able to feel as much and he would put them in a converted little refrigerator, the sort you keep, you know, coffee in or something. Yeah. And he would electroshock them to force them to stop the shocks by using their deafferented arms. Mm. And it was just rubbish. And he said it was to help people with strokes. And of course, we went to medical authorities and stroke organizations and they said rubbish. Uh -uh. So we were able to get a search warrant take the animals out, put him on trial, and it was the front page of the Washington Post. It went all over the world. And suddenly we had sacks and sacks of mail and people saying those magic words, which are, how can we help? Yeah, yeah, that's And beautiful. we said, let's tell you how we can help. <laughs> we were ready for that question. <laughs> and now they're using synthetic frogs in biology class, correct? We just paid $150,000 to make what's called a syn frog, S-Y-N mm -hmm. frog, and I've actually used it. It's fascinating. It has um, a membrane, a skin that you can cut up, uh -huh. and its organs are inside. You can take them out with forceps, just as you would with a real frog. And of course, not only is it cruel to frogs to use a real frog, it's a stupid old-fashioned uh, lesson. You know, little boys like to dangle the frog's innards in front of the little girls. Don't need it. Formaldehyde is used with a real frog. Don't need it yeah. with the synthetic frog. And so children today, I mean, can be more effective. They can learn much uh, easily, uh, easier. And you don't need the frog. So we, we're coming away from that. That's great. You know, let's go to sports and entertainment. Now, we all know about uh, Barnum & Bailey, Ringling Brothers Circus. That is no longer the case. But I want to ask you about two other uh, sports. One is the Iditarod, and that is a sled race for dogs in Alaska. And the other is horse racing. How do those campaigns stand at the moment? Well, the Iditarod has got to go. I mean, this was started years and years ago for a good purpose, which was to bring medicine from one place in Alaska to another. Um, and then it became a sort of sport. Mm -hmm. And now we have big purses uh, offered to the winners. But so many dogs die. They die falling into crevasses. They, f they die of pneumonia. That's the most common thing. They have respiratory problems. Uh, many of them are in awful shape during the race. They have veterinarians along the way to take some out. 
But we did an undercover investigation, and we went to some of the kennels of even top-winning Iditarod um, champs Mm -hmm. and found the way they keep their dogs when they're not racing, which is out staked in the ground by the cold ice, by the sea even, 17, 30 degrees below zero, chained out with just a piece of wood, a box, basically, to get no bedding, Um, on the ice, turning in circles for their whole lives. And then those, of course, who don't make it in the race are just disposed of. Mm -hmm. So the Iditarod is a terrible uh, throwback to a time when nobody realized who a dog is, that a dog is a social pack animal, that they don't want to be deprived of proper food, that they need veterinary care and all these things. So the Iditarod has got to go. And yeah. unfortunately, some sports person has just picked it up and wants to make it bigger than it is. Yeah, yeah. And it should be fading out. But on the other hand, Coca-Cola has pulled their sponsorship from it. So Indeed. You know, it's going both ways. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and many people have too. Jim mm-hmm. Beam, uh, for example. I think as soon as you point out to the major companies that this is really a stain on their reputation, it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing they want their banner put on. Um, that Many of them do withdraw. Yeah. And in horse racing, I guess so much attention has come from Santa Anita, where so many horses have had to be put down. Where do you stand with that campaign? Well, we've been very busy. Uh, We work behind the scenes with a lot of the racetrack owners to appeal to them to please at least implement reforms. Mm -hmm. And that's things like not using the whip, getting a proper track surface. Yeah. Not, and this is the big one, making sure that those horses are not running on drugs. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, legal drugs and illegal drugs are rampant in the industry. I mean, we've seen it in other sports. But of course, in horse racing, it's very much hidden because the horses are not going to say anything and they're not going to tell on the other horses. (laughs) But we have done undercover investigations. We've shown drugs like Lasex being given to the horses when they don't have a problem, but simply as uh, performance enhancers. Mm-hmm. And so horse racing is a dirty business. There's no question about it. We actually have a lawsuit now where we are helping a better of all people who placed a bet on a horse and lost. But afterwards, it was determined that the winner of the race was drugged up. Mm-hmm. So, of course, betters don't know where they stand either. <laughs> Let's turn to meat. And PETA has been at the forefront of the vegan movement. You have your starter kits. I think you sent out 300,000 or so just last year. And more and more people are going to a plant-based diet. And this is particularly true among Gen Zers that I've I've been able to observe. Um, Do you plan on continuing to inform and educate and get people to try vegan to see how they like it? Or do you think it might be a bit more forceful, as you have been in some of your other campaigns? Well, we're a mixed bag. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, we certainly we give out free food samples, mm-hmm. and particularly to the young, as you say. A lot of people are changing in the older bracket because they are worried about heart disease and yeah. cancer. And then people are changing because of the environment. But the exposés about animals the cruel conditions on factory farms in slaughterhouses. I just looked at a a video last week that even I, looking at so many, found very, very hard to take. And people see those and think, well, maybe it's time. 
the Golden Globes, as you know, just um, I saw they changed their, their meal changed just before it. Christmas. Thirteen hundred yeah. vegan meals. Fantastic, and they know they have an obligation really to go in that direction. Martha Stewart just mm-hmm. came up with a very funny video advertising the Beyond sausage or meatballs for Subway, and you're seeing this. Hardee's has a Beyond Burger, Dunkin' Donut. It, it's everywhere. And Burger King just came out with their Beyond sausage today. Yeah, it's yeah. so exciting. But I think there are so many good reasons that we can have a, a carrot and a stick approach is that we do need to nudge people. Mm-hmm. Come on, it's personal responsibility. You're an ethical person or you're worried about your health or you don't want the planet to be destroyed by deforestation, the Amazon burning and so on. But really, uh, we're able to work with corporations very nicely and say, you're missing a huge market uh-huh. if you don't put this on your menu. <laughs> and they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it starts, at least. <laughs> well, you know, KFC yep. in Atlanta mm-hmm. just tried finger licking vegan chicken mm-hmm. as a test, and it sold out in five hours. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, you're so well known for your outrageous publicity stunts and these controversial campaigns, many of them which have gone viral. Um, what have been so, some of the most effective, and what makes a campaign like that effective? Oh, well, that would be giving away our secrets, Ah. wouldn't it? (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Well, we look at opportunities. We are opportunists. We have to keep this very serious issue Mm. about the suffering of animals and the needless slaughter of animals in the news. And as you know, we have heavy competition. I mean, we're up against politics, conflict, sex, Good, good Lord knows Hard what. Hard for anyone to get noticed. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And so sometimes we have to be extraordinarily gimmicky. Um, one of the things we have done, of course, is we have sexy ads. And yes, people, even if they disagree with what they think is sexual exploitation, they have to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like a car crash, you mm. know. You don't like it, but you have to have a look. And so we will do things that are quite provocative with... Um, Such as? Well, we had a Super Bowl commercial. It's still online. You can go and see it. Uh, called Sexy Veggies. And it's uh, women in lingerie at a steam bath who are um, holding various vegetables. And, uh, you know, you read into it what you want. Yes. Uh, we never shoot anything that's uh-huh. totally nude. or that's, But people think it is. And so, so our sexy things really do. Do we get, hear from women's groups on that? Yes, but I'm a feminist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've marched. I've also stripped down. I mean, don't right. think too deeply about that because I'm 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but even 10 years ago, five years ago, I, I did naked marches when we had to. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the issues that is quite controversial is the organization's stance on euthanasia. Why don't you explain that, what it is, and your reasoning behind it? And particularly, this has to do with your shelter in Norfolk, uh, Virginia. Yes, we have a shelter, what we call a shelter of last resort Mm -hmm. in Norfolk. And what is happening these days, the the buzz phrase is no kill. And it does sound, I mean, who wants to kill animals? So all these shelters know that they will get more funds and more attention and more sympathy if they are no kill. But what that is doing is a terrible thing. To become no-kill in a society where animals are thrown away, where there are still puppy mills, where animals are still breeding and pet shops are still selling them, means that when someone has an aged animal or an animal who's very aggressive and can't be placed, 
These shelters won't take them, so the doors are closed. These no-kill shelters also, by and large, they restrict their hours. So a working stiff mm -hmm. who has an animal they can't afford, maybe they're unemployed, who knows what, they can't afford to take to a veterinarian and they've got to keep going to work because a vet may charge $200 for a euthanasia. Yeah. Um, we'll come to us. We charge nothing. Mm -hmm. We're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, and we will take in all comers. So the cute and fluffy ones usually go to the no-kill, or we refer them there, mm -hmm. and they refer to us, the dregs, if you will, the poor broken ones, the ones who've been hit by a car no one can afford, um, the ones who have cancer. On our website, we have a video of our field workers and our shelter and I challenge anyone who criticizes us for euthanizing, watch that video mm. and then tell me what you think. Because if we won't take them in, no one will. And really they need that final courtesy, that love being held, um, being looked after in their final moments and a painless exit from a world that doesn't want them yeah. or a world that they finished with. Yeah, that's tough stuff. Um, talk a little bit about language. You know, there's a lot of animalistic idioms out there that you're trying to get out of the vernacular, <laughs> like there's more than one way to skin a cat. And also uh, pets. You don't like the idea of people calling their animal companions pets. Speak about all of that. Well, it's not exactly our <laughs> most vigorous campaign, but it certainly is something we think is important. Yeah. Because language is important. You're absolutely right. And if you look back at... I mean, you know, no one can say the N-word anymore. That's marvelous. Uh, there are people who want to say it. They know they can't. And that's, that's progress. In the old women's movement, when we used to march and be called bra burners and what have you, mm -hmm. you know, it was, sweetie, will you bring me the coffee? And um, wolf whistling and calling uh, uh, women chicks and so on. It, it's part of a little bit of a debasement that if you put into language things like there's more than one way to skin a cat, um, even take the bull by the horns, yeah. which is, you know, bullfighting mm -hmm. and these bull wrestling things, it, it becomes something <laughs> normal. And we want to get away with that. So we say, take the rose by the thorns uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, feed, uh, not, um, you know, feed a bird, what is it, uh, feed a bird two scones or whatever it is. Kill two uh, birds with one stone yeah, kill, is one. <laughs> yes, is feed two birds with mm -hmm. with one scone. Yeah. <laughs> so we've come up with, we have a little dictionary yeah. of, of idioms. So you can choose one that doesn't disrespect animals. And that's it's fun, but it's also got a good solid point behind it. Those must be fun brainstorming sessions down at your office as you're coming <laughs> up with the replacement uh, idioms. Um you know, you were once regarded as an extremist, fringist group, uh, fringe group, uh, radical voice. And now with all the progress that has been made, PETA is in a little bit of danger of becoming mainstream. Uh, how does an organization keep its edge and face that complacency that can come about? Don't I know it? Yes, this is something we agonize about because on one hand, of course, it's marvelous yes. when a social cause movement is accepted. The things that were considered radical and revolutionary now have become mainstream ideas. Um, in the main, uh, no pun, but you know, you still see people walking down the street in Canada goose jackets. Young people who know that fur is, is wrong but haven't really connected the dots and still have this bit of 
coyote fur around their neck. So there's a long way to go. But yes, we're mainstream. We talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. We refocus things. We had a youth group that has been pretty much inspired to become more vigorous than it was. It was very... Um, well, I would say it was becoming mainstream. It's now going to be more uh, agitating. But we talk about it. We try to tweak things that we're doing so that they do still get attention. But you're right that much of our work has gone behind the scenes with corporate meetings, influencing people in other ways, um, writing opinion pieces, this book, Animal Kind, I mean, right. I, I consider it mainstream in a way, but also it does have revolutionary ways you can help animals in it. So, yeah, it's a hard hard way to, to think of things. Yeah. I guess a big piece of it, though, is that you're just self-aware of it. And doing that, you stay focused on it to try to keep that edge. And it happens with so many organizations, they don't realize that they've become a little blunt and, uh, and you're, you're, you're certainly aware of it. Let's talk about Animal Kind, which you co-authored with Gene Stone, and in it, you talk about animals' intricate emotions, the way they communicate, their intelligence, their empathy, and so on. Share with us some of the revelations. Well, I thought I knew a lot about animals, but in researching for this book, I found out some extraordinary things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, and I'm not recommending this, if you take a snail away from his home, he will make his way back to it at the speed of 0.02 mile, 29 miles an hour, <laughs> even if it takes him two years. Um, I also found out that squirrels bury their uh, cache of nuts by the position of the stars. And I had no idea of this. And if they see you watching them or another squirrel mm-hmm. watching them, they'll employ sleight of hand ah. and actually pretend to bury a nut there, but not. <laughs> <laughs> I was also fascinated by many things about elephants, some of which I knew, which, of course, is that they communicate by rumbling mm-hmm. um, underground for one or two miles where they can communicate with another herd. And in fact, park rangers have found a herd of elephants up against the fence in a wildlife park, just trembling and gathered together because another herd of elephants had told them through these rumbles Mm. that there was a cull going on, that people were were shooting uh, elephants in another part of the park. They also, they're fascinating, they have more genes for smell than any other animal. So those trunks that you see are able to detect a scent and extraordinary um, ways. They, they also use their trunk as a snorkel mm-hmm. when they swim. And they do swim. They're excellent swimmers. They'll really? plunge into the ocean <laughs> and swim if they can, not if they're in the circus, poor things. And they use their trunks the way we might use our finger and, uh, and thumb, our forefinger and thumb, to pick things up very delicately. Yeah. But every single animal, from fish singing underwater to mice giggling, they actually giggle. Mm-hmm. Um, Chickens to, have a pecking order, don't they? They do. Mm-hmm. And, of course, not on factory farms, but they do have a pecking order. Uh, I, I just have an endless supply now of information, and I've tried to cram the most interesting parts into the book. Well, you succeeded. Let me close with this, Ingrid. You plan to continue your activism even after you die and have drawn up your will to ensure just that happens. What is that plan? Well, I was almost in, a, in an air crash, 
And those of us on that plane who didn't know we would live were all desperately thinking about things about our family, our work, and so on. And we did live, obviously. I wouldn't be here. (laughs) But the next day I was in a meeting, and I thought, what an awful thing that my activism, which is basically my whole life, Mm -hmm. the thing I want to do, would have been over. And it occurred to me that I could, if my body had managed to survive, I could will the bits and pieces of it to continue activism. So I drew up a will. I have a pathologist. I have an attorney who can manage this. And if my body is still intact when I go, we're going to use bits of it. For example, part of my liver will be sent to France to protest foie gras, which is caused by or produced by force-feeding ducks and geese until their livers expand. It's a Mm. hideous thing. And my ear will go, at least one of them, will go to Canada. (laughs) So perhaps presented to the Canadian Parliament to say, can't you hear the sounds made by the seals when they're bludgeoned to death on the ice? Maybe the seal kill will be over by then, and then we'll find another use for the ear. But I've donated my body to Peter to use the bits and pieces, fry up the flesh with some onions and garlic, let people smell it and come to see what they can eat. And then you say, oh, Lord, it's her. (laughs) We're all sisters under the skin. Well, I hope this doesn't happen anytime soon. (laughs) Well, Ingrid Newkirk, the co-founder and president of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and the co-author of Animal Kind. Remarkable discoveries about animals and revolutionary new ways to show them compassion. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. How can people become more involved in the organization and help support this work if they're so inclined? Well, bless you for that question, Denver. (laughs) We have, of course, websites and Twitter accounts, PETA.org, and we want to help people make change. So if someone has a child in school or they're a teacher, they'd like alternatives to dissection, Resources are on the web. Our videos, happy ones, funny ones, very sad ones, are there to put on your social media account. We have lists of cruelty-free clothing choices, lists of wonderful vegan foods, recipes, cookbooks. Anything you want, we have. We'll even mentor you. So please come and join us because we can't have a kind world unless everyone gets involved or a lot of people get involved at least. Well, thanks, Ingrid. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. We have all been told at one time or another to sell an idea or convince someone of a particular point of view, we need to reframe the issue. But to do this around social justice issues, such as immigration, criminal justice, homelessness, addiction, and poverty, that's hard stuff and takes rigorous research. There is a nonprofit organization dedicated to doing this difficult work and has helped to produce some very significant outcomes. It's called the Frameworks Institute, and it's a pleasure to have with us this evening their chief executive officer, Nat Kendall-Taylor. Good evening, Nat, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Tell us about the Frameworks Institute and the mission of the organization. 
Sure, the Frameworks Institute is actually in its 20th year this year, coming to the end of its 20th year, and we're a, a nonprofit organization. We describe ourselves as a social science communications think tank. That's a mouthful and kind of ironic given that we do communications and struggle to come up with a short, <laughs> concise, awesome way of talking about what we do. But we are a group of about 30 uh, largely social scientists. I'm an anthropologist by training, but our staff consists of people who are political scientists and sociologists and social psychologists and linguists. And what we do uh, is we study how people think about social issues in really kind of the, the deep, common ways that underlie opinions and attitudes. Uh, and then we study how the way that people present information shifts those deep patterns of thinking. And specifically, you would be a psychological anthropologist. Tell that's, us a little bit more about what that is. That's right. And if you're uh, if you're someone who knows what a psychological anthropologist is, congratulations. <laughs> There's one or two of you out there in the world, and that's about it. Um, and my, my parents are not part of that one or two. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> so, I, uh, so I've been doing framing work for about 13 years now. And in that work, I am centrally interested as a psychological anthropologist in the way that people use culture mm -hmm. to think. Uh, how people use culture to process information, to make meaning of messages that they receive, uh, to kind of take on information and use it to reach decisions about how to think about issues, what to do about them, um, and, and also kind of how to feel about the problems that we, that we face as a society. Before I started to do framing work, I used that same approach to do some really different stuff, primarily on the Swahili coast of Kenya, studying how families with children with epilepsy think about that condition and how culture influences the way that they make decisions about whether and where to seek treatment. You know, you just mentioned framing, and framing can get bantered around quite a lot to the point you don't even know what it means. So what is framing, and why is it important? Yeah, framing is certainly, um, among a host of other terms, narrative change being another one of these things. Innovation. Where, <laughs> innovation, uh, where, where it becomes so ubiquitous that it loses any and all meaning that it ever once had. <laughs> right. Uh, and so when I talk about framing, when, when, when Frameworks talks about framing, uh, what we mean is the ways in which uh, decisions in how you present information affect people's perceptions and behaviors. That, that's it simply. The choices that you make in how you communicate your messages and how those choices, both big and small, have impacts, have effects on what people think, how they feel, and what they are or are not willing to do. And sometimes those are kind of the big obvious choices about whether you frame messages in terms of innovation um, <laughs> or responsible management or um, fairness or success. And sometimes they're really small choices that you make in terms of, for example, how you use pronouns right. um, on the issue of immigration, for example, mm -hmm. whether you say us and them, they and those, or whether you say we and ours are mm -hmm. really significant choices when it comes to a lot of the issues, the social justice issues that we work on. Very interesting. How do you think about communications? What is your mindset? Are you trying to maybe target a particular audience, or is it broader than that? Do you have a time frame in mind? Uh, tell us how you're thinking about all that. Yeah, so one of, one of the ironies about uh, me doing work on communications is that I'm not trained in communications. Um, I have a, what I think is probably a pretty different, sometimes that's good different, not all the times different, 
way of thinking about communication. So I'm centrally interested, um, as you could imagine, being an anthropologist, I'm interested in culture. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in how the way that we talk, the choices that we make in the way that we talk, and how those choices kind of persistently and consistently advanced into the public conversation can actually shift culture and change how we think about issues. That, mm. that is my central preoccupation. I'm less interested with um, audience segmentation, um, fundraising, um, electoral communications. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in how the, the way that we talk and talking in different ways, mm -hmm. when a lot of people start to talk in, a, in different ways, how those changes can actually shift how we how we think and behave as a culture. And I'm interested um, less so uh, in terms of kind of uh, product communication, and I'm interested in, in social issue communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have a longer view. Yeah. I mean, most people are trying to have a message and get a donation or have somebody do something, but you're really looking for that tectonic plates and, and shifting that in the culture. And I think that's a, that's a frustrating thing sometimes. I think a lot of times when people... Um, uh, approach someone who who works in communications. They are looking for that more immediate you instant know, results. Yeah, I say this, you do that. Exactly. Done. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a it's a frustration for some, um, our staff included, myself included, sometimes that the work that we do on communications is not, it's not lickety split. Um, yeah. It's not a six month long uh, advertising campaign that has a wicked awesome bumper sticker that makes change, you know, turn on a dime. It's it's the long kind of social movement perspective. Yeah, so often when people communicate a message advocating uh, to change a behavior or promote a positive social change, it not only doesn't work, sometimes it can have exactly the opposite effect. Can you give us an example where this has happened? Yeah, unfortunately the examples are, um, the examples abound uh, <laughs> on this. And it is, it's almost every issue. So I've worked on 40 social issues over the last 13 years and wow. almost every one has this, what we call, uh, or what the field calls, either a backfire or a boomerang effect. Mm -hmm. You think you're saying one thing, um, and, and it's heard, and when it's heard, it sends people in a, in a very different direction. Um, and so one of my, one of my favorites is um, on the issue of early childhood and early childhood development, where Frameworks has done a lot of work over its 20-year history. We have um, tested this frame that the field um, uses, uses less now, but, but five, ten years ago used quite extensively around vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? So the idea is that if I can make you see how vulnerable young children are, you will, you know, run tripping over your feet to support the the policies and the, um, the resource allocations for which I'm advocating. And we have found, and other people have found consistently, that while at some level that makes logical sense, when you actually frame issues of early childhood in terms of vulnerability, it, it depresses. Hmm people's support for those policies. It makes the issue seem like less of an important, less of a salient social issue. So, uh, and when you see this work empirically, when you see this in research, you realize really powerfully with kind of this hand to your head, oh, moment where, where the field has been investing in this strategy for a long time without evidence or data, kind of based on, on gut or, or guesswork and with, with good intentions. Oh, sure. But, but in so doing, are advancing a frame that not only wastes their very valuable communications, real estate, and resources, but uses those limited resources in a way that disadvantage, that work against the very goals that they have. Nothing would have been better. <laughs> Nothing would have been better. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
You know, one of the most frequently cited examples of changing a framework to achieve a desired outcome would be the campaign for marriage equality. Tell us how it was originally positioned and then how that frame changed, which ultimately changed people's mind about the issue. Yeah, so the first thing to say is that um, I feel a little, I have a little imposter syndrome going on right now. I certainly know about this example. It is, as you're saying, kind of the canonical, seminal example of a frame change. But I also want to be very clear that this is not work that that I worked on or that Frameworks worked Mm -hmm. on. There were some very committed communications researchers who who I know um, who did this work, and and I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm um, I'm claiming credit for for work. That I, that I wasn't involved with. But the reason why it's used um, as such a kind of hallmark example is it's a, it's a great example of a frame change. Right? Yeah. So for a long time, uh, the field had been advancing kind of a rights-based legal frame for, mm-hmm. uh, for marriage equality that, um, that individuals um, uh, across the board deserve to have the, the legal right to marry. Um, and um, that was not an effective frame, as people as people well know. That advancing that frame uh, and being disciplined in it did not lead to to the changes that advocates and and people working on that issue sought. Um, and it was actually through communications research, extended communications research, ongoing communications research, that um, people in that movement found an alternative frame. And it was not one that evoked uh, kind of a call for equal rights. But it was an evocation of uh, of love and caring and the kinds of feelings that we all have uh-huh. and value in the relationships that we have. And so, um, once the field found evidence that that was uh, kind of a game changer, uh, the really important thing is that is how disciplined and consistent the shift was. Mm-hmm. So people got on on that page and they got on the same page yeah. and they advanced that frame once they had found it and found it to be powerful. In a coherent, in a you know, in a, uh, a kind of a collaborative, um, and a consistent and persistent way, that that led to some that has led to some shifts uh, in understanding that issue. Now, I think the the jury is still out as to whether um, those changes that have been those positive changes, those gains that have been achieved on the issue of marriage equality mm-hmm. are really translating into other areas um, of of the issue that really matter. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm optimistic mm-hmm. about that, and it is a great example where people were talking in one way it wasn't working. The frame shifted; it shifted thinking and kind of unlocked the ability to achieve um, policy change, which then is now feeding back and shaping culture and how people think. Yeah. And, and it really... did happen, relatively speaking, pretty quickly after that frame change occurred. You know, since the beginning of time, we have been trying to get kids to stop smoking with very, very limited success. And over the last 10, 20 years, I mean, it has dropped precipitously. Was there a frame change there that helped that occur? So you've just asked about the two kind of nicest, cleanest, most awesome examples <laughs> of um, of where you started, which, we'll is, get why, ambiguous which in a is why framing, which is why framing matters. And so it's, it's great to have these examples where there's a, there's a before, there's a change, and there's an after mm-hmm. in tobacco. Uh, is another one where, um, and I think it's really important to emphasize the fact that both in marriage equality and in tobacco, these, uh, this discovery of a new frame was not accidental. People didn't stumble into this. They were committed and did very careful research mm-hmm. when it came to these things. But for a long time, as we all know, tobacco was framed um, uh, 
you know, by by tobacco and ironically by advocates as an as an individual vice, um, and framed in that way, responsibility accrues or or is attributed to individuals. If it's an individual vice, then it's your responsibility to to stop and do the things that you should. And the frame change that occurred was the shift from individual vice to defective product. Ah. And once that change, and you can start to see it, it, it you start to see it in your own mind, that, mm-hmm. that once you start seeing tobacco as a defective product rather than an individual vice, there's a shift in how you attribute responsibility, right? So it goes from you yep. as a smoker being responsible to the industry right. being responsible. And the key is that once that change happens, a whole bunch of solutions that don't make sense when you're thinking about it as an individual vice start to make sense when you see it as a defective product. Mm-hmm. So regulation is entirely appropriate when you're dealing with a defective product, but misses the mark when it's framed as an individual vice. Right. So that change in framing shifts responsibility and again plays this kind of unlocking role and making a whole bunch of more public health level solutions imminently um, plausible and and very supportable. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about another individual vice, perhaps, which could be addiction, because that is being framed as individual suffering and bad choices. And the only solution is to make better decisions and have stronger will. It's sort of the Nancy Reagan, just say no determination. So the opioid issue is often framed in that fashion. Now, what is wrong with that and what can be done to change that framing? Well, I mean, it's the it, it's very similar to, to tobacco, yeah. I think, right? So as long as an issue is stuck at the individual level, people's ability to see public policy solutions remains limited. Mm-hmm. Addiction in general, but the, the kind of specific issue of opioid addiction more specifically has been plagued by this sense of kind of individual will, responsibility, choice, discipline. Now, um, in part, it's so hard to shift those because they are such foundational ways of thinking in our culture, mm-hmm. right? So bootstraps, John Wayne, Jay-Zism, however you want to say it, is is a core tenet of of American culture, has, has always been, and um, <coughs> I think is, you know, will always be. Uh, but part of the answer to shifting, and I think in some interesting ways, advocates have, have gotten much better at this mm-hmm. on issues of addiction and opioid addiction in particular, in kind of allowing people to see the conditions that surround individuals and that lead to and keep individuals trapped in these patterns of addiction. And so I think that part of the answer for shifting mindsets on addiction is giving people as much practice in thinking about those contexts, those situations that individuals are in and how we can change those as we give people in thinking about individual will and responsibility. Let me ask you about a a, a broad issue, and it's one that drives me crazy, and I'm sure a lot of other people as well, and that is getting support to pass preventative social and environmental policies to make people safer, make people healthier. We'll spend a ton of money after the disaster occurs, but to do something up front, how do you change people's mind and opinion on that? Well, you've got your your finger on it, which is um, it is really hard to get people pumped to go out and do a lot of work and spend a lot of money so that you see nothing, nothing. as a result. Right? <laughs> yes. So that conceptually is an incredibly sticky wicket. That's mm-hmm. a really hard thing to frame for people. Um, and there's a whole bunch of psychological reasons and cultural reasons why that is. So mm-hmm. there's 
delay discounting, the fact that we always value the here and now more than the, the later. Right. Um, there's, uh, there's cultural reasons um, uh, why, why that's so difficult to get people to, to realize. But so this is, this is something that I talk about a lot and I think is in terms of the field of communications is actually quite under-researched and underfunded. There isn't a good body of research they're starting to be, but there is not yet a good body of research that looks at how to crack that that conundrum mm-hmm. of, of prevention. Um, there is great work, for example, going on in the field of climate communications, which shows that if you appeal to a legacy value, right, not to your personal gains, but to the things that you will leave future generations, you can make people more positively predisposed to think kind of ahead and forward in time. So there is good work going on, um, but uh, inherent in your question is the the idea that people across a whole slew of fields struggle and, and fall down frequently and dramatically when it comes to talking about prevention. It's a human condition. Yeah. I mean, I do it in my own life. Yeah. I, I absolutely know. Um, Nat, how do you go about doing this work? I mean, doing the research, getting the data on an issue, coming out the other end. I mean, what how, what goes into the whole operation of this? Yeah, so this is a short interview, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the abridged, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. But this is really, I mean, this is the thing that I'm probably most excited about in in the work that I've done over the last 13 years is with my colleagues at Frameworks. We have um, we have brought together methods from various disciplines and kind of knitted them together into uh, into a way of doing applied framing research. Mm-hmm. And so we're interested in a series of questions and we have methods from different disciplines that answer each of those questions. So the first question we ask in our work is, what does a field want to say? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the core ideas that they want to be able to effectively frame and communicate? What, what do you, as, a, as an addiction advocate or a criminal justice, what do you want people to know? Yeah. And you'd be surprised at how hard that work is for people who work on issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of importance in giving careful thought to the, the question of what is it you want people to know. Um, and then we're really interested in how I mean, people, there's a lot of assumptions that go into yeah, that. And I think a field a has ton. assumptions. And a anybody ton. who goes into that field lives with those assumptions and doesn't challenge them probably to the degree that they should. Right. Or the difficulty in kind of crystallizing and distilling what for most people who work on issues is an incredibly deep and wide body of knowledge, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's really hard. How do right. you go from everything you know about the death penalty or immigration to a finite set of things that are essential for people to know mm-hmm. about those issues? I so mean, it's essentially the experts are not the audience. That's right. That's right. So that's, that's, a, great, um, that's a great phrase, uh, and I, I think it's kind of part of the core of our work is the degree to which our, we are frequently in a role where we are reminding people that you are not your audience. Yeah. And then they nod knowingly, kind of like you're just doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they leave the room and, and they back go to back they to did. doing it Absolutely. It's like going to a way. conference and getting all these tips and going back to work and forgetting everything. It's the same way. <laughs> yeah. So we're also really interested in, um, in how people think about issues. And that's mm-hmm. really why, frankly, why I as a psychological anthropologist have a job, right? So we study deeply how people make sense of, of these really complicated social and scientific issues and not being concerned about what they know about issues, but yeah. rather deeply how they think. What mm-hmm. are the patterned assumptions? Um, and then I guess the cornerstone of our work is the question of not, not what ideas do you want to communicate, not how people think about them, but what is the story you should be telling? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think the really the, the unique aspect of our work is that we don't treat that as a um, as a question that can be answered by a group of experts around a table, but rather we think about it as a research question. Mm -hmm. right? So you, we test different ways of communicating about the issues that we've talked about, addiction, early childhood, and we measure how those choices, those differences, have concrete and measurable effects on the things that people care about. Yeah. Support for policy, attitudes, opinions, mm -hmm. um, whether people are willing to engage, motivation, things of that nature. You know, sometimes it's interesting that you don't know that much about any of these issues going in, so you approach them with humility that you don't have the answers, and that is probably the best frame you can have. And I do know that, you know, I think one of the great distinctions is that when you interview these people, it, this is not public opinion. This is really digging in to deep. I mean, these are multi-hour interviews to find out what their thinking is at its core. Yeah. Um, and so I think when most people come upon our work, the model they use to understand it is public opinion work. Yes. Um, and and I, there is great value in public opinion work, mm -hmm. but it is, it's really important to realize that it's different than the work that we do. And the way that you just said, I'm not interested in what you know. About a particular um, about a particular issue, I am interested in how you think. Yeah, right. What are the deep common patterns that you rely on frequently without knowing it at a subconscious level? That's right. That inform, that in shape, mm -hmm. that shape how you how you think about those issues. So that's really and and my people um, anthropologists my people. call <laughs> call those cultural models. Yeah, These are yeah. things like individualism, right? Like fatalism, like Otherism mm -hmm. that shape how we process information when we receive it. Yeah, I, I can't remember the company. I think it's Toyota, but one of their rules of thumb is to, is to ask why five times. Yeah. So when you, people give you something and just ask why or why right. and why, you start digging in really deep, and they don't sometimes know why, but then what they almost discover for themselves that ooh, this is this is pretty. This is who I am. Yeah. So you said five times um, yeah. in a two and a half, two to two and a half hour interview where we're asking people to to talk and think and explain and narrate an issue, we ask why more than more than five times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we ask why for two and a half hours, wow. basically, right? Yeah. And so we're getting people to tell us stories, to explain how things work, to provide examples. And it's in the, the provision of those examples, the telling of those stories, that you start to see these threads become apparent in how they're thinking. Let me close with this, Nat. Um, what have you learned from all this work about how people think. What do you know about that, which I don't know, and you could share with me? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to say that I've, I've learned quite a bit that I didn't know 13 years ago, and it's been an incredibly fortunate position for a psychological anthropologist to be in, having studied so many issues across, across so much time. And I think the thing that I'm left with, which feels really powerful and important right now, given our preoccupation with polarization and how different we are, is how similar we are, hmm. right? The degree to which there are these common, deep understandings that that largely are shared across groups we are told are different. Yeah, And I think there is in incredible optimism and power in realizing the ways that we draw on similar ways of making sense of our, of our world, the people in it, and the actions that are necessary to improve it. So I'm, I'm, I have some some energy and some optimism around the fact that we are, in terms of the work that I have done, not as different as we are led to believe. Well, that's a great final insight. Nat Kendall-Taylor, the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. 
Tell us about the information you have on your website and how organizations can get in touch with you if they're thinking about their own communication strategy. Great, and thank, thank you for, for having me, Denver. This was a, a fun interview. Um, if people are interested in finding out more about the work that we do and who we are, uh, our, um, all of our studies are free and publicly available. That's both the good news and the bad news. All of our studies are free and publicly <laughs> available on our website, uh, which is uh, www.frameworksinstitute.org. And I'd encourage you to go on, check it out, and uh, shoot us an email if you've got any questions. Well, thanks, Nat. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Raji Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. So I hope you can be here for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.